Welcome to Network Capital TV. Here we try and demystify how inspiring leaders uh, got to doing what they do today. We focus on mental models and career principles. So we're thrilled to have you with us. You had a multimodal, multinational career. So could you briefly tell us uh, who you are and what do you do today, Rahul? Sure. Listen, thanks for having me on in the first place. Uh, it's nice to hear that I'm an inspiring leader to somebody. Um, you know, my wife will be pleasantly surprised. Um, so yeah, you know, I've had an interesting journey. Um, I got uh, done with college in 1990. Uh, still in the early years of uh, the early waves of change in India were coming upon us. So I actually got done with school in 1990, got done with college in 1993. And, um, you know, coming out of an economics background, one of the things that I was interested in is um, engaging with consumers. And the opportunity that I got was to get involved in the world of advertising. Uh, and so I ended up spending a couple of years in, in agency land and, and I got to work on some fascinating business, including spending about 18 months of that in the Bay Area, uh, where I worked on Sprint's business, a telecom company. Right. Uh, I came to India in... Uh, 1995 and that's around the time when telecom was just getting liberalized and I managed to find a, an early entrance into a group called Hutchison Max. So I was amongst the first uh, employees at Hutchison Telecom in India. Uh, I remember in the early days we were literally standing by the, by the roadside uh, educating consumers on what a mobile phone is, how it works and, and how they can actually use it when they're in their car or in a train. So um, Fascinating time. I spent uh, five years uh, in India in, in kind of operating roles and then went to the US for an MBA. Um, I actually applied to a couple of colleges, was lucky enough to get into Kellogg. Um, interestingly, you know, a lot of people who went to Kellogg ended up in the world of consumer goods or consulting or banking. Right. Um, I did do my internship in consulting, but realized very quickly that I would be a horrible consultant. Uh, you know, I just enjoyed being much closer to the business. So while most of my class ended up in, in consulting or banking, uh, the day I graduated, I actually flew to the Valley and, and I realized that, you know, I wanted to build and I really enjoyed the idea of being in the Valley at that time. The, the tech bubble had not burst as yet. And so it was flaming hot. And, and I uh, went out and started banging on uh, on doors of Kellogg alumni saying, listen, I'm here. I've got a background in telecom and media and you know, I'd love a job. And, and I think as luck would have it, I got lucky. Uh, I got involved with my first startup in 2000. Um, that company got acquired by another French company. So I went out and found another gig and then it's kind of learned my way, you know, and learned the way of the valley uh, for about five years. And then um, I actually came back to India in 2005. Uh, you know, I was part of that early wave of returnees that were drawn to sort of the, the emergence of, you know, the tech economy. And, and it was very early days. There was almost no venture capital in India. Uh, and I came back on a wing and a prayer, hoping to do something in the startup ecosystem. I had a couple of business ideas, actually put a team together to try and, and build a, what was at that time known as an MVNO, a virtual network operator. 
uh, and even had the audacity to call Virgin Mobile and tell them, look, I'm building this. And once I built it, you know, you can come and buy it. So it was an interesting time. Uh, but what I discovered, you know, at that time, and this is now 15 years ago, was that there was no venture capital in India. And even though I had what I thought was a great idea and a, and a strong team, there was just no risk capital available. And the ones that were around, you know, wanted 50, 80, 100% of my business very early on. So I decided that probably it made sense for me to come over to the other side of the table and start identifying, you know, great teams and potentially disruptive businesses. I reached out to a few friends in the Valley and convinced a, a firm called Clearstone to give me a shot at helping them build their portfolio in India. And so sort of became an accidental VC uh, back in 2005 because there just wasn't any capital available. And most people that were looking at raising capital did not have any doors to knock on. So um, 2005 is when I started my investing journey. Um, and, and quite honestly, got lucky. The first investment I got involved with um, is now a $2 billion company called Buildesk. Wow. And there I had the opportunity to sit on the board for five years and build a great relationship with those founders who I have a lot of respect for. And slowly learned the VC craft, right? I, I really do think about venture capital as a people business and not a money business. And I think the more you do of it, the better you get. Because over time, you know, in many ways, venture is like a pattern matching business. And the trick is to, to see a pattern early, right? By the time you call it a trend, everybody knows it's a trend. So then it's, you know, you've sort of missed the window to get in early. And if you go too early, then oftentimes you might end up waiting for a long time for the company to break out. So, you know, I spent about 10 years in venture, half of that in, in Mumbai, um, you know, setting up Clearstone and running that for a while. And then in 2011, moved north uh, to Gurgaon, to where I was a partner at a larger venture capital fund called Canaan Partners, where I had the opportunity to work with slightly later stage companies, companies like Equitas and Naptol, some that went on to be publicly listed as well. So for about 10 years, you know, really sharpened the pencil on, on venture capital, building out, I think, this ecosystem, because really, in many ways, the responsibility many of us carried, you know, at that time, firms like Axel and Sequoia and, and to some extent, Matrix and Nexus were just getting started and we all sort of entered the business at the same time. You know, 15 years later, it, it all seems fairly uh, easy, but I can tell you back then, you know, besides the challenge of just raising capital, just educating the market, talking to entrepreneurs, talking to investors, uh, there was a lot of heavy lifting involved, even to get the government on board and create the right economic incentives to encourage fund managers to raise money for India. So I think the nice thing about the journey so far, and at least up to 2015, was I'd been part of an ecosystem creation journey, which was very satisfying because I'd seen the flows of capital go from a few hundred million dollars a year to several billion dollars a year into the equity side of the house. But what I'd also seen was a, a sort of gap in the market around any other form of alternative financing. So many of the founders we worked with were happy to receive the equity, but as their businesses were growing, you know, they kept asking us, you know, why can't you provide us some debt? We'd love some working capital. We want to fund some deposits. 
we don't necessarily want to raise money right now. We'd like to do it six months later. And our answer as equity investors was, look, we don't do debt. And I think as that narrative got louder and louder, you know, it started to emerge that this asset class called venture debt, which was at that time sort of virgin territory, needed to be built. Uh, as luck would have it, you know, we ended up selling our Canaan India portfolio to one of our largest LPs. And that's the time when, you know, I decided that rather than joining yet another venture capital firm, that I would uh, spend the rest of my, my time actually building a new institution. So that's really around the time when I took the leap of faith along with a dear friend, uh, a gentleman called Nilesh Kothari. Uh, we decided to, to go out there and, and start to build a new asset class around venture debt. And five years later, you know, I think we've had a little bit of success in, in creating what is now seen as a fairly robust uh, asset class and, and hopefully we'll grow a lot more from here. That's the, that's the journey. No, this is fascinating. There's so many questions uh, um, I can ask based on what you said, but our community members already shared a bunch of questions and uh, uh, we will get to some follow-ups uh, in, in just a second. Could you sure. tell us um, what's the difference between being a contrarian, being a pattern matcher, and being somebody who sort of joins the bandwagon? And how do you, uh, when you, as an investor, where do you yeah. want to be? And what do young professionals, what should they aspire to uh, do to learn these things? Sure. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, being a contrarian means, you know, you're swimming one way and everyone else is swimming the other way. Being a pattern matcher, probably has some flavor of that, but, you know, not necessarily, you know, people may see that, but you may see it sooner. So people may turn around and follow you. Um, and I think the third one you said was... Somebody you know, who joins by the time uh, others have already, like, what's the right. trend? Like people who join the trend, like people who talk, start talking about yeah. Bitcoin last year. Yeah. So I think the third one also is not a bad thing provided you recognize that the, the risk reward profile may be different, right? So, so I don't think that any of these is good or bad. I think a lot depends on what you think about risk and reward. And I think some of that comes from um, your comfort with uncertainty, right? I think from, for a long time in India, you know, the risk of failure, um, the risk of uncertainty, is not something that we are trained to be comfortable with, right? We have our careers planned. We know which colleges we want to go to. We're, we're planning way ahead in terms of the classes we want to take. And God forbid you don't get into that engineering school, you know, you think your life is over, right? So I think one of the, the signals that I would like, you know, young professionals to, to embrace is the world is a very uncertain place, right? And I think with COVID and everything that 2020 has shown us is that you actually don't know what's coming around the corner. And so, you know, the only reality is the one we're currently living in and everything else, you know, will, is out of your control, right? So I do think that, you know, what people need to get more comfortable with is they have very little influence over the output. Uh, all they can control is the input, right? And therefore, I think staying true to the process, staying true to your own DNA and recognizing that your own instinct might be to be conservative, 
and then maybe you're better off being a public market investor. But if you have a little bit more uh, risk appetite, maybe you are a pattern matcher, or maybe you are completely creative and, and an out-of-the-box thinker, and maybe that allows you to be contrarian because you have a certain part of your brain that's wired differently from everybody else, right? So I, I do think at some level, you know, we will, it'll be hard to fight your natural instinct. You know, I've always debated this about whether entrepreneurs are born or whether they're created. And, and my view on this is that, you know, it's very hard, you know, we are, we are uh, conditioned by our experience and, and by what's around us. And if you've been brought up in an environment that is incredibly risk averse, and you are trained to think, you know, about managing downside, it's very hard to suddenly, you know, be risk taking and, and become an entrepreneur, right? Which is why for a long time, you know, entrepreneurs generally came from business families, because in many ways, you know, the financial security that they had, and the fact that they'd grown up in an environment where you were taking personal risk to build a business was different from what you saw in corporate land. I think the big leveler is that capital, which was otherwise scarce, is now widely available. And the cost of failure, which used to otherwise be a, a massive stigma, I think has slowly come down, right? So I think there is now a much greater level of risk appetite, but equally coming back to this question of, you know, what should young professionals do and how should they think about it? I think they should over time get comfortable with you know, their own DNA, right? And, and not try and be somebody else. Yeah. How did you discover your DNA and how did you learn investing? Because you're at heart, uh, you were first a marketeer slash advertising person. Then you started up, you sold the company, yeah. then you became yeah. an investor. Uh, how did you discover your DNA? How did you learn investing? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know if I had necessarily one particular mentor, but I think that, you know, through the different roles that I had, I worked with some very high quality people. So one, you know, I, I was lucky enough to surround myself with people that were great practitioners, you know, of their craft, right? So when I was in Hutchison, I had the opportunity to work with, you know, some great leadership. When I moved to the Valley, you know, I had the opportunity to work with some great founders. And I think I was very open to absorbing you know, a lot of what they were doing and, and trying to see you know, how I could build out my own war chest of capabilities. So I think one, you know, I was constantly picking up signals around what does it take to build a business, right? As opposed to being a great investor. Because I felt that if you can build a great business, you know, the money will follow, right? Um, I think when I came over to the investing side, some of that first principles thinking stayed with me, which is, you know, find great people that you believe you can have a long-term relationship with. Because in a 10-year period, every dimension of what you're doing will change. The landscape will change, regulations will change, customer behavior will change. There'll be many externalities that you cannot control. But the DNA of the people that you work with will hopefully be the same. So I think my journey, you know, from being an operator to being an investor, when I was an operator, I was thinking about the business. And I think when I came over to being an investor, 
I spent a disproportionate amount of time thinking about whom I was writing a check to and not what I was writing a check to. Understood. And uh, when it comes to analyzing businesses, you mentioned that a lot of uh, the context changes, the people changes, industry changes. Um, yeah. Have you seen some things that stay constant? And as an investor, what are some uh, fundamentals beyond people uh, sure. that one should recognize uh, and sure. keep in mind? So I'd put it in a few buckets. You know, one, um, generally behavior change is very expensive. So when you are trying to build a business that requires a change of behavior, it's probably very hard for just one company to do it. It'll require a, a cohort of companies. So as an example, you know, when we were driving the move from you know, physical payments to digital payments, you know, it required a cohort of businesses to be created, a lot of capital to be spent, but then only a few companies came out the other end, right? So one recognized that as a standalone company, driving behavior change is very hard. And so therefore, you know, it can't be done on the cheap. Uh, so when I think about businesses, you know, one of the aspects I'm saying is, is this substitution, you know, of an existing behavior, or is it a new behavior altogether? If it's a new behavior altogether, you know, then, you know, has this company thought through how much work that's going to take and how much capital that's going to take? So that's one dimension. Two is, you know, margins, right? I think generally speaking, um, most venture investors would like to start with what I would call high gross margin businesses. I've rarely seen margins actually improve. You know, a lot of businesses talk about improving margins. I think generally you stay range bound. So if you start low, going high becomes very hard, right? If you start high, maybe you stay in that band or you go slightly lower, it's still a good business. Third is the notion of operating leverage, right? Which is, is this business truly one where, you know, at some point, I don't have to put in a rupee to make two, right? Can I put in a rupee and make three? Can I put in two and make six? Can I put in five and make 50? So is there any real operating leverage in the business or not? And then finally, I think I would look at outcomes, right? Because I think as an early stage investor, you get very attached to building a great business, right? What I don't think enough of us do is think very carefully about, you know, what does that exit look like? Right? And, and I know it's very hard to build a business to flip it. It's very hard to build a business to take it public. But I think one needs to be much more mindful, particularly in a country like India, where M&A is not as obvious. There still are a lot of questions around taking companies public. If you want to be successful long term, I think you have to have a very strong point of view on how and when you will exit. Because as an investor, you know, your job is to deliver great returns to people who've given you money for a finite period of time. And I think a lot of us, you know, have spent time sharpening the pencil on putting money in. I think getting money out is the harder part. Um, in terms of uh, identifying opportunities, one way is, of course, that you surround yourself with great people and you're part of great networks. But at some point, the network effects and the people effects uh, perhaps start to fade. How does right. one investor distinguish himself or herself from others in terms of identifying such opportunities? And of course, sure. you don't need to agree with the network effects, uh, you know, becoming equal for, after a point in time. But uh, we'd love your critique on these two points. 
You know, so capital does become a commodity. People don't, right? And so I think that eventually, you know, this is an ecosystem with a very good feedback loop. You know, if you are an investor that operates with certain principles, if you demonstrate to your portfolio companies that you have their best interest at heart, you don't necessarily need to be the founder's best friend. But I've always said you must have a trusting and mutually respectful relationship, right? I think it's also important that you never cross that line of telling the founder how to run his business, right? Because it's very tempting sometimes, you know, for investors to get carried away. I think what will happen over time, and, and this is what venture is about, it is, a, it is a long cycle. But I think once you complete a 7, 10, 12-year journey, you start to build your own persona along with the brand of the firm that you represent, right? So today I wear a couple of different hats. You know, I wear a hat of an investor for Trifecta Capital. Um, I also, you know, am a founder of the business, so I, I have that added responsibility. Uh, but I also have over time, you know, built a certain track record of behavior. And, and I think that then tends to attract or distract from people wanting to work with me, right? So I tell a lot of my team that as you are building the brand for the firm, you must also build your personal brand and you must find a way to demonstrate to the founders that you work with that one, that you can earn their respect because you are able to bring things to the table that they can't bring to the table, but two, that you over time, you know, have the capacity to learn and grow um, I think one of the big challenges when you're managing a lot of money is it's easy to get arrogant, right? It's easy to feel like, you know, you are in the business of giving. Um, I think what we've got to understand is, look, finally, we are, we're actually service providers, right? We provide a service to entrepreneurs. We provide capital as a service. And I think as long as you stay true to that mindset that we are here to serve as opposed to give, I think that hopefully will tend to attract a certain kind of entrepreneur who says, you know what, this is the kind of person that I want to have a long-term relationship with. So I, I don't think, you know, network effects, you know, can commoditize people's personal brand. And I think increasingly as India moves into an environment of repeat entrepreneurs, I think they will choose who they want to work with because I think the demand supply equation in terms of good people and, I, and, and capital is flipping over to you know, the best founders being able to choose who they want to take money from. Understood. So uh, that's a really important point. And once you've immersed yourself in that, are there, uh, is there some sort of deep study or analysis that investors do or should do to identify, say, opportunities much ahead in time? Have you personally done that? Or do you know some people yeah. who do that? Yeah. You know, for me, um, I obviously uh, have other challenges around managing conflict of interest and, and how can I go too early? Because later on, if I do that in my personal capacity, then, you know, we may not be able to do it in the fund. But generally, you know, what I find is that, you know, angel investing is a great way to, to keep learning, right? And, and I think if you can get involved in writing small very early stage checks, particularly in sectors that are emerging, 
um, you know, that gives you a great opportunity to learn, right? And, and I feel like you know, nobody has a monopoly on, on, on that wisdom. But the best way to learn is to commit some capital, right? Because that, that keeps you engaged and, and hopefully you care about what somebody's doing with your money. Uh, at least for me, I've used angel investing as a great way to stay maybe one lap ahead of institutional investing, right? And, and I think that's worked reasonably well so far. Obviously, now that you know, one is managing a fund with third-party capital, you know, one has to be mindful of any conflict of interest. But I think for a lot of institutional investors, finding a way to, to kind of either partner with or leverage you know, folks that are one or two laps ahead of you is, is a good way to go. I'd say the other is, you know, probably over time, you know, people develop areas of interest and that will then naturally draw in a certain kind of deal flow. I think what I found is, you know, particularly as a venture investor, over time, you know, your domain probably doesn't matter, right? Um, because if we look at just in the last 15 years, we've done everything from you know, horizontal commerce to vertical commerce to on-demand to fintech to edtech to agtech. So if I was an ag guy, then I'd have been doing nothing for 10 years. If I was just an education guy, then I'd be nothing for, you know, for a long, long time, right? But I guess what I've found is if you can find an area of, of functional strength, so let's say you're really good at finance or you're really good at sales or you're really good at strategy, right? Let that be where you go really deep. And then what you need to do is to be able to be a mile wide across so that it doesn't matter whether you're talking to a guy who's running a business in ed tech or in fintech or in ag tech, right? But when it comes to an area of either go to market or technology or, or whatever it might be, that you have a way to demonstrate a level of sophistication that maybe then draws you in and makes that relationship, you know, more meaningful, right? So I, 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 because I do think that at least in the Indian context, uh, a generalist makes for a better venture investor than necessarily a specialist. In fact, uh, there's an article I wrote on deep generalists. It's, uh, it's a term which is, uh, you know, quite literally what you described, having right. an anchor and also sp spreading. And Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, do you identify as a deep generalist? Because you do have a couple of anchors, like you did know telecom quite yeah. well. You actually built and sold a company in, an, in that space. So uh, after acquiring that depth, does it still help you uh, broaden your horizon? Or how do you identify yourself? Generalist, specialist, bit of both? You know, I would say that... Um probably more of a generalist only because, you know, I find many different industries interesting, right? It's not to say that um, I don't find, I, I like solving big problems, right? So I think for me, you know, I believe that we have a lot of challenges in India. And I think that solving these problems at scale is, is going to create a lot of impact. And so rather than pigeonholing myself into one particular vertical. Uh, I think that, you know, if one can be generalist, then one can continue to problem solve 
and hopefully have impact at a very different scale, right? So I'll give you my thesis and maybe we can talk about it later, but I think that generally speaking, you know, the large sectors that I've seen transformed in India over the last 30 years have been when a public good, you know, has been transformed by private enterprise and private capital. So if you look at telecom, media, and to some extent banking, these industries were considered to be a public good, which meant that you know, it was the government's job to provide and, and we were the takers of one TV channel, one telecom operator, and everyone generally banked with you know, one bank, right? And they had various flavors, but let's say it was one big bank. Um, in the last 30 years, that status quo has been completely upended by the role of private enterprise and by the role of private capital. As consumers, we benefited because we've got superior product, better prices, greater experiences. And I continue to believe that over the next 30 years, there'll be multiple public goods that will need to be disrupted by private capital and private enterprise to deliver real quality, real scale. And that includes sectors like education, healthcare, transport, food, and to some extent, energy. So I think that, you know, the last 30 years were really a taste of what is to come. And I think the big driver and accelerator of change, obviously, is digitization, right? Many of the companies that we are involved with today could not exist if the infrastructure around computing, you know, everybody now has, you know, a, a supercomputer in their pocket, connectivity, which is everything that we see around us, whether it's 3G, 4G, and then finally, payments, right, that have been digitized. So I feel like also the fabric of, you know, the, the infrastructure has also been built to then create leverage businesses. A Baiju's in its current avatar probably would not have been possible without connectivity and computing being available at scale, right? So I, I actually think the next, you know, 25, 30 years is where we're going to spend time solving what I call very India-centric problems. Uh, the last 10, 15 years, particularly around the venture ecosystem, you know, we were still very much talking to the first 100 million people um, and solving what I would call rich man's problems, right? These, we're solving a lot of convenience problems. Right. I think the next you know, 10, 20 years will be solving a lot of access problems. Understood. Um, do you agree with Peter Thiel's hypothesis that... Uh, the goal of every business is to be a monopoly. And do you see that play out when you look at, say, the business wars of very closely competing, very similar products in different industries? Yeah. You know, I sort of like that idea of kind of N of one, right? I think that, you know, if you can be instead of one of many, if you can be the N of one, you know, nothing like it. Um, I'm not sure every business you know, can become a monopoly. Um, I also think that network effects don't come easily in every, in every market or every segment. What I do believe though is that uh, in markets like India, you know, you may not even have a rule of three, you might end up just with two and then everybody else, you know, is a long way behind. So I do think that when I talk to founders and we spend time with companies, I think one of the questions we ask ourselves is, you know, can you be the category leader or can you be the key challenger? 
if you're going to be number three, four, five, over time, you know, you may get crowded out or you may just become irrelevant. And we're seeing that, you know, there was a time when in telecom, there were 20 operators, then it went to 10, then it went to five, you know, we're down to three. And God knows we might end up with a duopoly or even a monopoly, you know, in, in the world of telecom. So I, I don't subscribe to the fact that everyone should be a monopoly, but I do think that, um, you know, very quickly, um, the market consolidates around one or two key players. And uh, Rahul, what about unit economics as an investor? And you've been an investor at various kinds of funds and financial instruments you've played around with. Uh, what does unit economics mean to different investors? Yeah. So, you know, what I think about is at different stages of a company's journey, it's, it should end up creating different kinds of assets, right? Um, and I think those assets can get monetized in different ways. So, you know, as an example, in some businesses, building distribution assets may come at a premium ahead of necessarily focusing on great unit economics at a product level, right? So in a country like India, where distribution is still at a premium, you know, building great customer connect may be more valuable than trying to monetize that customer connect early. I think on the other side, you know, just building distribution, the notion that if I build it, they will come is also a flawed notion, right? So I do think that, you know, there are customer assets, there are distribution assets, there are, there are data assets. And I think what people need to be very clear about is depending on which milestone they are in their journey, what are the most critical assets that they're trying to build, right? For some companies, it might be, I need to build a great customer asset because my business has a lot of virality. And if I can get two and two becomes five and five becomes 10, you know, the virality part of it is more important. And therefore, I don't need to demonstrate, you know, unit profitability at a customer level, right? Because over time, you know, when Facebook went public, I think a lot of people questioned, you know, whether this would be, a sustainable business. And I remember the stock actually tanked, if you remember, you know, after the IPO. And then it came back, you know, stronger and stronger. And, you know, I think to their, in their wisdom, you know, buying Instagram and, and WhatsApp, you know, ended up being, you know, master strokes, right? But my sense is that, you know, we tend to swing wildly in India between chasing growth and chasing profitability, right? And, and my, my sense on this is that, you know, it's not too extreme, right? I think it's about calibrating growth to some end, right? I, I think what sometimes happens is when you have growth without a clear business model, you know, that's when things get ugly, right? So as long as you know why you're chasing growth, uh, you can always delay profitability. Understood. Uh, as an investor, as in when you've been wrong or your thesis has been incorrect, when you did a root cause analysis, what was the origin of, of that? And yeah. what did you learn from some of your mistakes? So I think this can, you know, again, none of us are perfect. And I think part of becoming a venture investor is you have to lose someone. Otherwise, you're not probably taking enough risks and, and you're not learning. So I would say that the three areas where venture investors go wrong and, and maybe where I went wrong as well is one, um, getting excited about the business 
and not about the people, right? I talked about my journey as an investor. It took me some time to realize that actually don't get so excited about the business, get excited about the people, right? Oftentimes as a VC, you get really charged about a business when really you should be thinking about who are you writing the check to? So that's one flaw that, you know, I, I, and I probably made that mistake a couple of times where I got fired up about the business. The second is, you know, in venture, the challenge is either you're too early or you're too late, right? If you're too early, you can sit around and watch grass grow and, and it takes a long time for a sector to come of age. If you're too late, you know, you probably missed the, the kind of deal that will return the fund, right? So I think, you know, timing entry uh, is tricky and there's been situations when I've gone too early and, and the sector just didn't play out or, you know, I, I picked a player that I thought could compete and ended up getting crowded out, right? So, you know, because like I said, it, it's not one company, you know, it takes a, it takes a village, right? It takes many companies to create, a, to create a team. And so if you pick too early and you don't get your pick right, it's very easy to get crowded out by other companies that raise just a lot more money than, than you can put into it. And the third blind spot, to be honest, is regulation. I think a lot of us, you know, don't spend enough time thinking about how regulations can impact the investments we're making, right? Now, you know, for the longest time, you know, people like Uber, you know, the single biggest headcount was probably legal, right? They were fighting law in every country they operated in. A lot of businesses in India that are experimenting with new models, you know, are straddling a regulatory line that has not been proven, right? And for a while, even the OYO business model, you know, was not clear as to whether you actually can operate a hotel inside a hotel, right? Until they decided to do their own, you know, the idea of taking a space within another space was not, was not obviously, uh, was not clear, you know, whether that's legally allowed. So I think as an investor, one has to figure out, you know, is this too far left, week, left field of, of regulation where eventually that could come back to bite you very hard? Or in general, if what the company is doing is in the greater good, you know, can a case be made to saying that, look, this is what should be allowed. So take the example of, of online pharmacy. You know, there's a, for the longest time, there was a lot of questions around whether, you know, this will be made a, a practice that is legitimate, right? And a lot of money has gone into, into the online pharmacy business without being 100% clear about the rules on operating as an online business. So I think this is where, you know, I, I do think that, that, you know, we saw this hit us very badly in microfinance where because of predatory lending, uh, the regulator clamped down on the MFI industry. And overnight, you know, many, many millions of dollars uh, were destroyed because uh, of regulation. So that's the third piece that I would encourage investors to be clear about, at least know the regulatory challenges when you're going into a deal. Uh, we get many questions about breaking into venture capital. So um, the two-part question is, one, how do you hire? And second, yeah. is that what advice do you have for young people who are thinking about careers in venture capital industry but don't have uh, sort of the, of the ideal profile, for the lack of better words? As in, like, uh, if they don't fit into a neatly categorized box. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
venture is one of those black boxes, right? Getting in is, is <laughs> part mystery, part, you know, secret, part, you know, you know, luck. But at least for us, the way we think about it is, you know, we look at a combination of, let's call it pedigree and life experience, right? I think the pedigree comes from having seen people who've excelled in whatever discipline they chose, right? They could have been a lawyer before, they could have been a, a scientist before, they could have been an engineer before. You know, do they have pedigree in that and did they end up excelling in some form, right? Because we, we are dealing with very, very bright people on the other side of the table. And you want to make sure that whoever is sitting on this side of the table has the horsepower to keep up with them, right? So one is pedigree. The other that I'm very focused on is life experience, right? Did this person have, you know, what kind of journey has this person had? Have they had equal amount of success and failure? You know, have they, uh, you know, learned from that experience? Um, a lot of our team, incidentally, you know, has the classic founder, they look just like the guys we write checks to, right? They have the, unfortunately or fortunately, they have the IITs and the IAMs and the, you know, all the bits pilanis of the world. They have all of that pedigree. But what they also have is what I'm looking for is a combination of some hard knocks, uh, seeing some successes, having things not work out. And, and in a strange way, what I call Baniya Buddhi, right? Which is, you know, uh, do they have a certain amount of business acumen, right? Because, you know, finally, uh, when you sit down with an entrepreneur and you're talking shop, I think there's a certain amount of ability to understand the business and, and, and have a view on what the biggest challenges are. And I think that buddhi sometimes comes from having been a founder yourself, right? So at least half our team have been entrepreneurs before. So what I would encourage you know, many young professionals to do is go spend some time in operating roles, right? Venture capital is not a theoretical business. It is about understanding you know, a journey of a company from A to B, B to C. And I think unless you've been in an operating role, it's very hard to dimension what the challenges are and whether or not this company can deal with those challenges. So at least when I talk to people who want to get into venture, my first advice to them is, listen, go spend some time in an operating role, either in a large, really well-run business where you can you know, experience what it's like to be at scale. Because sometimes if you don't see scale, you don't know scale, right? If you haven't worked at a Google, you don't know what it's like to be in a Google. Or, you know, go out and do some scrappy work in a startup and demonstrate that you can add value in that environment. Oftentimes in venture, the people that we end up hiring, some, you know, come from some of the portfolio companies. And, you know, let's say there's an exit and there's somebody bright. And we've seen this, you know, at least at my old shop, couple of the people we hired, you know, came from portfolio companies where we thought that they were really high potential and, you know, were reaching a point in their career where maybe they'd be better off sitting on this side of the table. I see. Um, this is uh, precious advice. Have you seen or have you hired somebody who uh, does not meet the traditional criteria? As in, didn't go to a great school, didn't work at an elite company, um, if yes, then what did he or she uh, bring to the table that was hard? And if no, I think that's also very useful because uh, 
we don't want people to pursue career options that are perhaps not the best fit for them. Yeah. You know, like I said, you know, uh, one filter, you know, for how we look at, you know, the cutoff in many ways, you know, it may not be the right filter, but if nothing else, you know, uh, you know, it demonstrates, you know, commitment to hard work, right? <laughs> so yeah. I think, you know, uh, getting into any of these top schools, you know, you're anyway, you know, kind of a one percenter, right? Um, so I, I think it's helped as a screening filter, you know, could there have been some false positives because of that? Yes, right? You know, people get through into the next level because they have that, but they may, that may not be sufficient to be a good fit for what we're looking for, right? So I would say that so far, we haven't hired in anyone that did not have that kind of pedigree. Uh, but largely it's come out of the convenience of saying, if that has worked as a filter for, for many years and, and generally, you know, this has demonstrated a, a sense of capacity and willingness to work hard, then, then why not use that filter, right? So, you know, would I be open to somebody coming at it from a different background? Sure, right? Um, I think the challenge is, you know, how do we streamline, you know, the, the, the onboarding process and how do we, you know, find that one person out of a thousand that may have a non-traditional background. Right. Um, the last section of the discussion, Rahul, is on personal productivity. So could you give our viewers a sense of what a day in your life looks like today? And uh, what are some of the most productive and least productive things that you do in it? Boy, you know, now you got me. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a perfect, I don't have a you know, formula answer. I think, you know, depending on also where you are in an organization, you know, you have different levels of flexibility on how you use your time, right? But what I would say is, um, at least for me, um, what I try and do is balance different aspects of my life, right? I think there's an aspect of my life where uh, I play father and, and I have to make sure I pay enough attention to that. There's an aspect of a life where I play husband and I have to pay enough attention to that. I'm a son and I have to pay attention to that. And then in some ways I'm a leader and team member and I have to give enough attention to that, right? So one, I think it's very important to first formally acknowledge that you have many different aspects of your life and that you must consciously fill those roles, right? Because otherwise I think what tends to happen is we tend to largely pay attention to our professional sphere and everything else you know, becomes a secondary priority. Um, and I think what we've realized, you know, including you know, in times like this, that you know, time is precious, lives are precious, um, you know, really there's no guaranteeing that, that we'll be around you know, tomorrow. So, so one, you know, make sure that you consciously acknowledge the different roles that you have to play and ask yourself, am I doing justice to each aspect of the role that I play, right? That's, that's one, you know, guidance. Two, um, I really do like to believe that I live every day um, 
to the max, right? And, and that doesn't mean, you know, working 24 hours or working out 24 hours. It just means that you kind of end every day saying, you know what, I gave it everything I had, right? And, and if, if tomorrow never showed up, you know, I won't have a lot of regrets, right? And, and actually, I learned this a little bit by spending time in Israel. You know, I, I went out and as, you know, in the late 90s, I actually went and spent about three months in Israel working with an affiliate of Hutchison. And what I learned from the Israelis is, you know, they have an incredible attitude to life because they actually think that this day could be their last day, right? They, they really don't know if they're going to have a tomorrow. And so they put everything into today, which means working hard, playing hard, you know, giving everything into it every day. And so at least the way I like to live my day is, you know, did I move the ball forward every day? Um, did I try and make sure that I said everything I wanted to say so that I don't leave anything unsaid? Um, and, and did I, you know, have any regrets, right? And, and ideally, if you can live your life in that manner, you know, then I think a lot of the other stuff, you know, is, is hygiene, right? Um, so that's, you know, more guidance at a, maybe at a, at a level above, you know, this is what I do at 9 and 10 and 12. I, of course, I think you manage your attention. That's what uh, I learned from your comment. Yeah, because I think, you know, time is the single most important thing that we own, but we can't buy more of it, right? You can buy a lot of other things, right? But you cannot buy time. And so therefore, I think, surround yourself with, you know, high quality people, um, Focus your energy on you know, the bigger things. Um, you know, I've always also said, you know, God is in the details, so you can't, you know, ignore the detail, but recognize that, you know, one is here for a limited amount of time, and and I think before we know it, you know, we're going to be gone. So, oftentimes I do ask myself, look, you know, how do I want to be remembered, right? And am I making enough progress in that journey? Understood. Uh, Rahul, what do you, uh, how do you consume information in today's age? How do you filter a signal from noise? So, you know, I have, um, you know, obviously we consume a lot more content than we did, you know, when we, when we had our regular day jobs. But uh, what I try and do is I try and skim, you know, my favorite publications for a little while in the morning. I found that listening to podcasts uh, and finding podcasts that probably are um, being able to curate uh, people that I think are inspiring, uh, are thoughtful, has been very helpful. Uh, so I do use my time between watching, reading, and I find listening, you know, particularly helpful because there's a lot of you know, passive learning that happens just by listening, you know, and, and I think I found that to be very helpful. Um, and so I would say the signal to noise, you know, aspect of it is probably the curation, which is what channels do you open up? Um, and I think that probably comes with your areas of interest and, and people that you think are, are inspiring to you personally, right? And, and I think, you know, maybe at a different point in my career, things that I was looking to be inspired by were different. And probably at this stage in my life, you know, things that inspire me are different. You know, I'm just going to now conclude with uh, 
you know, some predictions, um, which is always fun. Um, do you feel that uh, what has happened right now with the world uh, geopolitically and with the virus and what have you, um, yeah. is it something completely unprecedented or have you observed or read about things in the past that have been similar-ish? And how do you see your portfolio come? Actually, no. How do you see companies in general uh, responding to it? Do you think certain kinds of companies will survive, certain not? Uh, yeah. And if yes, how, how might that landscape look like? So, you know, personally, I've never experienced anything like this. And, and I wasn't around, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, when, when there was a Spanish flu. So I guess, you know, at some level, at least for our generation, for my parents' generation, for my children, this is entirely unprecedented. Um, I think it's unprecedented because it's impacted, you know, everyone equally, rich, poor, um, uh, you know, wealthy, uh, impoverished. It's, it's impacted everyone. Obviously, I think, you know, um, certain sections of society have been impacted much more adversely, right? And, you know, the irony was it started out as a, as a rich man's disease, but very quickly, you know, it's, it's become everyone's problem, right? And, and so one, I think, um, I don't think, you know, we've seen the world, and, and particularly India, ever hit the brakes so hard, right? I, I have never imagined every sector, or at least most sectors going from 100 to zero, you know, in a matter of a week, right? So, so one, yes, you know, I think the answer is yes, it is, it is unprecedented. I think the question is also around, you know, how will people recover and, and what does recovery look like? And this is where I feel like in, in India, you know, we have become fairly desensitized to life. And, and, and I think, you know, because India has had so many natural disasters and, and we're used to famine and we're used to just the law of large numbers that many more people die in India. And it's actually very sad, but I think the, the value of human life in India is very low. And so we also don't have the luxury of saying, I will not go to work or I can afford to not go to work for a long period of time and I'll still be able to look after my family, right? So the tragedy is that we have low value for life. We also have limited savings. So people have to go back to work. So I think the truth is going to be India will bounce back because it has to, right? Not because it can, because it has to bounce back and it has to bounce back because a very large portion of the population cannot afford to sit at home, right? Um, now, you know, what that means therefore is that the wheels of the economy will start turning. You know, we will unfortunately have collateral impact, which is, you know, unfortunately people will lose their lives. But I think, you know, India may come back sooner because it has to come back, right? Um, so that's, you know, maybe this challenge that, you know, if we had to do it differently, you know, would we have done it differently? You know, it goes back to my original thesis that, you know, if we had opened up healthcare to the private sector, if we had opened up transportation to the private sector, would, would we have been able to manage some of this better, right? As opposed to being captive to state infrastructure, which may or may not have had 
the adequate incentives to build capacity or or be efficient so i guess you know we'll never know but i do think that the recovery will have to happen sooner and and i think we are blessed to some extent with you know much higher percentage of asymptomatic cases and things like that so people will just take it in their stride i i think you know living with covid will become the normal as opposed to after covid right and when we get a vaccine we'll see but you know i'm not necessarily i don't think india can afford to hold its breath till we find a vaccine thank you so much rahul um this podcast will be available on network capital tv shortly but i just want to take a moment to thank you for this candid conversation the mental models the mistakes the hiring processes you know it was a very insightful discussion into the mind of an investor and uh, we're truly grateful for your time and i personally loved every bit of it thank you rahul no thanks so much for having me on and uh, you know look forward to uh, to continuing these discussions in the future absolutely i mean i can't wait for a follow up because once this goes out we're going to get hundreds of questions in fact when we announced that you're going to be uh, coming on tv on network capital tv we did get uh, i think 160 questions so yeah we we expect a barrage after thank you rahul